Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. Hello guys, it's so good to be here. It's so good to be kind of racing through the episodes of Changes now and feeling that you guys are devouring the conversations and really enjoying them. Thank you so much for your feedback. I met a woman in a park this morning when I was out on my walk and she stopped me. She's like, I'm listening to your podcast. I love it. And that made me so happy. So yeah, it's feeling really good. And this week, the guest is just sensational. Her name is Candice Carty-Williams. She's an author of a book called Queenie, which changed the game in so many ways in publishing over the last few years. It's an award-winning book. Um, Candice was the first black person and the first black woman to win Book of the Year with Queenie at the British Book Awards last year. And uh, it was a Sunday Times bestseller as well. Candice is very strong and you'll hear that in this conversation. She's also remarkably candid and uh, the conversation is quite raw sometimes because she just doesn't hold back and it makes for a really kind of emotional and um, fascinating listen. Um, I was really struck by how generous she was in terms of, you know, how much of herself she was willing to talk about. It was, yeah, really insightful in so many ways. Obviously, she talked about changes. She suffered some huge upheavals in her life, um, kind of in terms of moving house and moving schools and losing people in her life. Uh, And then we talk about her journey as a writer and coming through this world of publishing where she was always the only black person in the in the room and the kind of role that was put upon her because of that um you know this burden of responsibility of you know having to be that person that promotes inclusivity and diversity without any extra money and how much that kind of took out of her she has changed publishing by creating the Guardian and Fourth Estate BAME, B-A-M-E, short story prize. And then she went on to write Queenie uh, because of her frustration at the lack of diversity and the lack of protagonists and, and black voices in kind of contemporary fiction. And you do really notice that. I mean, I did anyway after reading Queenie that I've read a lot of books that are thematically similar to Queenie. You know, that kind of coming of age novel of a young woman growing up and finding herself and her ideas of home and and all the fuck ups that happen when you are trying to kind of figure out who you are in your 20s. But I'd never, ever read a book where that person, that protagonist was a black woman. The book is powerful because it's so brilliantly written and you root for Queenie so much, but also because it is just showing up in its very existence, this huge space uh, in the world of publishing that is yet to be filled. This conversation is so interesting and I do so hope that you enjoy it. So let's start this thing off. Let's listen to a conversation I had with Candice Carty-Williams back in February of this year for Changes. Candice, hello and welcome to Changes. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It's so it's honestly it's so nice to have you to have you on the on the podcast. Um, such a fan of Queenie. 
proper devoured it like everything else was in the way the entire time it's like please leave me alone till I finish this book and yeah and have so many things I want to ask you about the new book and obviously change which (laughs) is what this podcast is all about um it's kind of an interesting way of talking to people through the prism of change um because Mm. it's kind of a different way of looking at how you've kind of grown as a person and we always for the listeners who don't know this we always ask our guests to to bring three answers to three change questions um but before we start them how have you been that's a big question also I'm a very big fan of you I wait I never know when to slip it in I never know when to be like I'm also a fan um so I was like just wait just wait just wait just wait there'll be a space um because I want to be rude and be like anyway thanks um yeah because I don't feel like that at all um do you know what it's been I don't know it's like it's hard and then it's it's like you accept it and then it's hard again and then you accept it but I feel very lucky because all of my friends and family are safe and well um so just trying to be grateful more than anything but it's just it's quite lonely and it's quite it's quite strange and you know we'll get on to it later but I've had to sit with lots of things that I haven't wanted to sit with um and one of my biggest changes has been having therapy because I'm sort of I've just been here by myself mainly how are you I'm okay thanks yeah I'm trying to um find a rhythm in my days like I'm, I'm an obsessive planner right I think I'm a control freak mm-hmm. so I like to know what I'm going to do and what's going to happen after that and after that and after that so being still and, and kind of being just having to be which this lockdown is is kind of forcing us to do has kind of been good for me in a way because mm. I'm just trying to like be in the moment and just take it all as it comes and all that stuff which I've which I've never really done before but yeah I'm good thank you Mm. I'm doing writing. I've been writing a lot and I've really, really enjoyed writing. Um, and it's hard to get anything done in the days um, with kids and, and stuff and homeschooling and still going to work every day at the BBC. Mm. So I've been getting up early in the morning. Gosh. Um, which has been cool, but it means that mm. around three o'clock I'm ready for bed. <laughs> I mean, how early in the morning are we talking? Because this was a like... struggle. 11.30 was a struggle. <laughs> Do you know what? I read somewhere that that's you, you, you're a night owl. Yeah. You sleep late yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you wake yeah, yeah. late. And I was thinking, God, is this going to be all right for you? I know, I'm fine. But I'll just, for the rest of the day, I'll be in a sort of daze because my body's like, why yeah. are we, why did we do that? Why did we get yeah. up at that time? But how early are we talking? Uh, 6.30. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think I went to bed at six this morning. <laughs> so we're basically crossing over. But that I, used to be yeah. me that used to be me when I was your age that was me the whole time and then things kind of had to flip have you got a rhythm for your days oh not at all not slightly I'm averse to lists or structure in any way it makes me quite anxious so, so you and me are the opposite in that way opposites which is like yeah it's a very, I have an obsessive yeah. need for it oh maybe God. I'll get maybe I'll like I just because I think it would be good for me to be like that but I don't think I ever will get to that point I'd love to but it's not gonna happen Hey, so let's talk about change then. The first, the first question that we asked you was to talk about a change that really had a massive impact you, for you in your childhood. Um, mm. tell, tell us what you said. So the biggest childhood thing, I guess, was moving from southwest to southeast London. And I did that 
obviously not by myself. Uh, we did that when I was uh, eight. I remember uh, I lived with my mum and uh, her partner and my nan and my granddad in this house in Streatham because I grew up in Streatham. And my cousin was often in and out and my aunts were in and out. So I always grew up around lots and lots and lots of people in this place that I understood uh, very well because I guess I knew the lay of the land of Streatham from a young age because we used to do lots of stuff. I was always out and about with my cousin. So my cousin is maybe seven years older than me and she was always that person that I just looked up to in the most like, you know, you just have this one person in your life and you're just like, she's so beautiful and so funny and so interesting. And like her and her friends used to like go raving in like machino trousers and they would listen to like all of this amazing music and I would just be like, wow. And like when she'd like walk around South London, because I guess that what else was there to do? Like in the in the 90s, she would always take me along with her and I'd always like see all of her older friends and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I knew South London really, really well, like all the streets of it. I just knew the texture of it, the layout, the smells, the sounds. And then... We, we we moved. My mum said, okay, well, we're moving to, to Lewisham. And I was like, what, what the fuck is Lewisham? And she was like, yeah, yeah, so we're going to live there, just me and, and her partner. And I was like, oh, that's weird, because I really like everyone who I live with in this massive house, so I don't really want to do that. Uh, but I was eight, so I had no choice. And I remember, I remember so well, that maybe too well, driving away the, that final night we spent at my grandparents' house and sort of looking out the back window at my nan, waving goodbye and being like, yeah, things are never going to be the same. And it was really hard. I think it's the... I still remember it very well. I still, uh, I, still I guess, miss that upbringing that I had and mm-hmm. could have had. And it changed the dynamic of my family, I think, to have us go so far away. And I think when I was like probably nine, 10, 11, I was getting the bus by myself back to my nan's at the weekends. I'd finish school on a Friday and then I'd just go to my nan's and then come back as late as I could. And I carried on doing that for years. I'd stay with my cousin until I was a teenager and go to school from her house on Monday. Also, Lewisham was, is amazing, and I count that as, I guess, the place that I grew up. Like, I had my formative years there, mm. but it was a very different place, and I felt very alone when I lived just with my mum and, and my stepdad. And then my little sister came along, but she was a baby, so she couldn't talk to me. So that was, like, it was dull. And how old were you when she came? I was nine. Nine. So I guess it, I, I wasn't uh, one of those uh, kids who was like, oh, there was, uh, it was just me and now there's someone else and the attention's gone. Just because I'd grown up with so many people around me all the time that I was mm. never the focus, which is good. I never, I don't like being the focus of any attention anyway. So right. it's quite good for me to uh, slip into the background. But I think for me growing up there, away from all of my family, there was a difference between being in the background and just the loneliness of mm just sort of being away from everyone and being quite young. And I don't think it was ever explained to me either. Um, So yeah, I just spent a lot of time by myself and a lot of time in this place that I couldn't like learn the the lay of the land because I didn't have my big cousin to take me around, you know? Did you have to change schools as well, I presume? Yeah, I had to change schools. And that was hard because I remember like I loved my primary school and I had a teacher called Miss Brown and you know when people are like oh who was the teacher who like changed your life or like told you that you could do what you wanted it was right. that teacher but I was like I wouldn't I can't remember her face and obviously I, can't, I would never know her first name because I was a child but she was amazing I went to Norbury Manor School for Girls 
and she was just the most incredible. And then at this new school, I had this horrible teacher whose name I can't remember, which is already a good thing for legal reasons, who was really racist. She oh, was. Wow. I, I remember I remember one of my, um, someone in my class calling me a fucking monkey. And I told her, and I understood racism at the time. I think I was in year, I was in year, so I joined in year five. So I was in year five. It was the end of year five. And I told her and she was like, just ignore it. And I was like what like I remember just being like I I don't understand and so there was just such a stark difference between being so protected and loved by this like lovely youngish black woman called Miss Brown and then going to this um this new school in this place that I didn't know and I didn't really like and I felt really lonely and all of these kids were pricks and um someone can call me a fucking monkey. Were you a minority as like a young black girl in that class? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Even in Lewisham, and Lewisham is such a a, a black area, it's hugely yeah. black. But yeah, I was, I always, I've always been. I think maybe there were like maybe two other black girls in my class. Mm. But yeah, so that was the hard thing. But that wasn't the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing was just feeling uh, so alone in it all and never just, I remember just never being listened to. So uh, I have... Um, I've had a, a mouse in my flat, which has been a big thing for me. Uh, I ended up having to jump ship and go and say lots of different people. Oh God, my condolences. That is, that is horrible. Um, it's just awful. It's just the worst thing in the world. But I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, Candice, you're not really scared of anything. So it must be, it must like link to something. Mm. And I remembered, because I had to go back into the sort of like chambers of my mind, uh, which I've been doing in therapy all the time. Right. And I remembered seeing a mouse in the house in Lewisham and being so frightened because I was like what is that thing in the bathroom oh my god I've just seen something and I said it to my uh, mum and said and I woke them up and they were so angry with me for for saying anything and then I realized that all of that anxiety is like why I'm so scared of them now because it was like I just wasn't ever listened to and I was like god it just like obviously sends me back so that sorry I'm getting really deep I can't help myself that is me all the time that's what it's all about that that's it's 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 totally fine like it's fine let's talk about your um your stepfather for a bit so it was your father in your life so he kind of like he he's one of those guys who's just kind of like he's just there he's like quite harmless but he's never really like done he's never like tried to be active right. we say now i guess it's like happy birthday merry christmas um and like if i try and start a conversation with him he's just not a conversational man i used to see him i think i can't remember the the frequency but he would come and get me and take me out or make take me to his house he lived in east ham so he would like take me there and i remember that journey very well but i just can't remember if it was every month or every week and he's such a quiet man so he never said anything and so i would always be in his presence and be like do you actually want to hang out with me so it's just always a childhood of always just being like does anyone like me like does anyone is anyone my friend apart from my cousin (laughs) who i've been taken away from and so yeah my my dad and then i guess like one day he just stopped coming to get me and then my stepdad was absolutely never I wouldn't even call him that he was like he was never that figure he never wanted to be a father to me ever 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 I was just kind of like my mum's responsibility and thus his responsibility Mm. what happened then later on in school so you're in this new school you're nine Mm -hmm. how did you uh, get on in that new school as you grew older so in my in my primary school so I remember academically I think I was 
recognized as being because I guess you don't have those like sets in in primary school but I think I was recognized as being like fairly intelligent and reading a lot but there was nothing they could really do with that and I guess it was like at odds with the fact that I was black so probably not as smart as anyone else but then secondary school I managed to get into one of the best secondary schools in the borough which was great had to do like loads of tests and I think an interview schooling in that sense was like I was put in all the bottom sets as soon as I got there which was like oh okay and then they said quite early on that I had behavioral issues so that was on my record and I was like I I mean I was quite disruptive but in the way that I just asked a lot of questions right and I can see that that's probably from being so not listened to at home to then going somewhere and then wanting to challenge what I knew wasn't right. But mm. I guess there were obviously other ways that I could have done that that weren't disruptive, but I was also a child. So I was just going to do what a child does because I don't understand things. So that was quite hard, but I also enjoyed it because again, I was suddenly around loads of people and mm. I didn't experience the racism that I experienced. I mean, there was institutional racism as in I was in all the lower sets, well. but I wasn't called a a monkey or similar which is nice you know I think by that time I'd settled into being in this new place and I understood it because I had agency and like me and my friends could like walk around after school what do you do when you're 11 to like 15 like where do you go I don't understand how we filled that time but we bus did stops a lot of bus stops it was absolutely bus stops mm. like it was bus stops it wasn't even parks like parks make sense but it mm. was the bus stops why <laughs> why is so weird why why <laughs> Tell me about the kind of, again, this feels like quite a quite a significant thing that happened to you is when you got excluded from school. Is that a yes. thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I was just like, shit, when did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I did. So uh, a group of girls and I, I just, it, like, I don't, see, even now I'm like panicking because I'm like, I wasn't involved because <laughs> I wasn't involved. It's like, Annie, don't tell me, don't exclude me. <laughs> but I wasn't. It was a group of girls who we like had pushed past a teacher and we had all been like in the room at the time. And then we'd also left there. I think the teacher was trying to keep us in after 3.15, which is obviously a crime in our eyes. And some girls had pushed her out of the way. And then we had also left the room once she'd been pushed out of the way. Um, and I was just pulled into the group of girls that had supposedly done it. I wasn't even, and I genuinely wasn't even anywhere like, near when it happened. Um, but like me and four other girls got excluded for excluded for five days and I remember telling my mum and I was like well obviously the school told my mum but when I was like I didn't do it you know like I really didn't do it she kind of didn't really say anything and then my stepdad took it upon himself to be like well you can't be in the house when you're excluded so you better find something to do and I was like I'm fucking 14 years old all right I'll find something to do and I just went, ended up going to Lewisham Library. And so I would just leave the house. I fucking love that library. I had to leave the house the same time as I would leave the house and come back the same time I would come back. So I left the house at like eight and then I'd go and sit in the library and then I would be there for the whole day and I would just be reading and reading and reading. And then I would leave at like three and then walk home. Yeah, that place really saved me because again, it was like quiet, but... I never feel lonely when books are involved. Did you have a, a kind of epiphany that week? Like, did you walk away from that week thinking differently about yourself and who you could be after kind of spending that much time with books? I think I always understood that I loved them. I think I always knew because I was reading again since I could remember. My mum said that 
My mum is dyslexic and dyspraxic. And so she said I started reading to her. Quite, I think I used to get quite frustrated when I was like maybe like three or four. And I would just be like, you're not, do not quick enough. Like, let me just, let me take over. So I've always understood that I love them. And I wanted to be a librarian for a really long time. But again, I think I just left that week being like, thank God that I, I can just go back to school now. Because mm. I think also I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. But I think the fact that, that that week and knowing that I did that sits in me so like deeply at 31 means that obviously it had an effect. Mm. And you weren't writing at anything at this point. I mean, I presume you were writing in school, like essays and stuff. But did you feel anything about writing? So when we were doing like exams, like that was something that... <laughs> I was always a person who was like, hi, sorry, I just need some more paper. Because I just recognise that, like, the more you put on the page, the more they would have to give you marks for. Like, you just keep going. But also, I could write and read very quickly. I recognised that I could write and read yeah. at a speed that was, like, quite strange. Um, and still now, I can read a book in two hours. Like, I can... I read diagonally. I don't know if that's like a What thing. the hell is that? Um, so I look at a paragraph, and then rather than reading line to line, I just read it across and I just end up picking up the full paragraph quite quickly. Yeah, it's really strange. I've tried to describe it and explain it, but people are like, I didn't shut up, stop it, stop talking. Um, <laughs> but it's shocked. like a very good thing. So it's, it's like not like linear. Thing. It's kind of like, no. it's kind of like, it's like, it's like your eyes are moving across a paragraph and you're kind of getting an overview, but you're taking in all the words. Yeah, exactly. That's Mad. exactly it. So I've I'm just going across like, yeah, yeah. So that's how I read. And I just write super, super fast. I just like get into it and I'm like... So there's just, I have just, my brain just has a very interesting way of wow. processing word, I guess. Yeah. Because you wrote, you wrote Queenie in a big, in a big burst as well, didn't you? The first part of it anyway. Yeah. So I wrote the first, I think it was like 40,000 words of it in a week. And then, and actually most, and usually with writing, like a lot of that doesn't stay, but most of that has stayed. And then I just added onto it every week. And then with my second novel, again, I just wrote it in a burst. And then I wrote a short story not long ago. And again, that was like... 20,000 words in in two sittings but that's just because that Jesus is... and do you do you know what's what's going to come out of you or are you just allowing it to come out and then you read it back and you're like okay so that was my story if you know what I mean yeah so like with everything I've written I'm like I try and plan and then I look at the plan and I'm like what the fuck are you like get away <laughs> like you're just it's like as I said to you I don't like planning it makes me very anxious and so like I literally, so I, I was like, okay, so you need to write this thing, you need to write this thing, you need to have this thing in by Monday. And then, yeah, I, was, I knew I was always going to do it, but I was like, but you've got to do it. You're just watching stuff. Because it had just been the end of, so Christmas had obviously just happened in New Year. And I wrote this plan out because I was like, okay, why are you watching stuff and listening to stuff? Write a plan. And then the next I got the plan out and I was like, oh my God, get away from me. Like, I don't even want to look at you. And I just like, you just go, I just go. And I'm like... What is it gonna? What is this story gonna tell me, and what are the characters gonna tell me? And I'm so obsessed with characters that I'm like, you tell me what's gonna happen, and I'll just write it down. Like that genuinely is it. I've never ever planned. So you kind of surrender yourself to the character. You just allow them to absolutely, dictate. yeah. And sometimes I do stuff, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, are you serious? <laughs> is that actually serious? What you did? Oh my god, you're wild. <laughs> and then I'll just carry on. But I think that do you know what I was like thinking about, it and I was like, that I think comes from spending your childhood. So much right. to by yourself right. and just like making up. So and I make up story in like a lot of other ways, in bad ways. So like with my dad, he's mm. so quiet that I had always been like, he doesn't like me. That's yeah. where my brain would always go. So mm. I just make up these stories and I'm so convinced by them that I believe them. And mm. I, but that I guess works 
if you're an author because you have to stick by what you write, I guess, you know, like while you're writing it anyway. Okay, second change, um, Mm -hmm. something that you went through as an adult and you're very glad to have come out the other side of. So what would that be? Oh, yeah, that was like lots of um, hits of grief when I was in my mid-twenties. So, um, I mean, I've spoken about this before and uh, my friend Dan, his parents, I always check with them that it's okay to talk about it and they're like yeah yeah, of course they're like because like you know I still send them Christmas cards every year um and they get them back it's really nice but I was I was 25 and I had uh, a really amazing best friend who's like my my best friend in the world I met him when I was 21 22 at the end of university Uh, he was a friend of a friend and he came to visit her and I spent all my time just laughing so much like in a way that I've never laughed before and at the time I remember I had a chest infection and I had to say to him I have to go and sit somewhere else because if I stay next to you I will stop breathing because every time I laughed I was like I couldn't I was like debilitated so I was like I have to go sit somewhere else but he was amazing and and if like a few years into maybe a couple of years into knowing each other he had a bad back and we were like, go to the doctor. He was a photographer, so he always had lots of equipment. And he was like, no, I don't want to go because I'm freelance. And like, it will show up on my insurance and people won't hire me. And we were like, but you should go because it's really bad. And he was diagnosed with cancer. And then he, he went through that process. Uh, I don't even know if you call it a process, but I remember being very like close to him. I mean, alongside it, because I was also like... Oh, I want my friend to be okay. And so I remember all the ups, which was like, oh, there's this new treatment they've discovered, because discovered, and then all the downs, which were, you know, it was like, oh yeah, no, it's not actually um, taken. So we'll try something else. And then eventually he um, went into hospital and I I knew that I wasn't going to see him again. You know, you just have a feeling. I was like, this is the last time that I'm going to see you. Um, And he wouldn't let, me visit because he was like I don't want you to I don't want you to see me like this like this is not how I want you to see me last but I remember because I knew the time was coming I remember I was able to tell him that I loved him and that he was really important to me um and then his sister was one who told me he passed away but I just yeah I but I could tell like I, I think the day it happened I could tell um that was I think still the hardest thing that's ever uh happened just because I never had I mean I had to have a pet who died it was a rabbit called Zelda but I didn't really care because I you know what I mean I was young and it was a pet so I know you're meant to get like pets so your kids can understand what death is but yeah that was the first time because very luckily I still haven't lost a family member like you know I'm 31 and I've got all my grandparents and all my both my parents um you know in, in ways <laughs> And so, yeah, so that was really tough. And and then my first relationship ended around the same time. And three weeks after Dan passed away, I was walking down the street. I was going to my friend's house in Hernhill. And I got a message from a friend of a friend. And she said, can I call you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she called and she was like, Anton's died. And I was like, right. And it really was like within the month of me like grieving for my best friend, another best friend had had gone away and and um he'd had a seizure. Oh my god. And um 
I was just remembered. I got. I just knocked on my friend's door and I just said that like, Anton's dead, and I just sort of like collapsed onto them. And I didn't really know what to do because they knew him as well, but not as well. And it was just like a really. It just felt like in in such a small time, I was uh, I was going through all of this loss, and 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 I did I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how people could uh, leave and go. With Dan, it was one thing because I guess I'd had time to prepare for it. A breakup is a breakup, and then the breakup also is its own. You know, it has There's its grief own. In that, of it's, you know, just yeah. because you're just like, oh, you were like also my best friend that I spent every sort of uh, minute talking to him with, and now you're just gone from my life, and I can't talk to you again. Um, and then another best friend passed away, and it, yeah, it was all in the space of like, I guess, two months. That 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 those three like big things, and for the next, gosh, the next like two years. I was just like, I just had to sort of press all of that stuff down. And I I think I've only really started now understanding the effects of that because I do have such bad separation anxiety just because right. when people leave, I'm like, you're going to die then, you know? And yeah. that's a really, really intense thing for lots of people in my life to have to um, deal with. But they're good because they're, cause they understand it and I have to tell them like, like if I get a phone call from someone and it's not planned, right? I think them. so. They're telling me yeah. someone's dead. Like I literally, I'm just like, oh god, who's dead? Like every single time, there's been no time that someone has just called me up and I've been like, hey, are you just calling for a catch up? Great. Yeah. I'm literally always braced for like death, yeah. and it's like, yeah, we're like four or five years on, and I'm still there because grief doesn't. Um, you know, because again, in not understanding it and no one really talking about it mm. to me anyway and not really seeing a, a, a lot around it. I I think I just always, I my my logical assumption would have been that like every year that passes, it gets easier. But Dan has a plaque in a church and I always, well, I obviously pandemic aside, I would always go and visit it when it was uh, his birthday um, and when it was Christmas. I would just go and sit and talk to this plaque on this bench in this church. And the first, like, two, three years, I'd just be like, anyway, and so, you remember this person? Well, do you know what they said to me? And I would just be, like, talking to it, and people would be walking past, like, yeah, she's doing what she has to do. And I'd light a candle for, like, his mum and his sisters. And then the year that everything started happening with Queenie, I, I went to, to visit, and I was telling him what happened, and I was just weeping for, like, an hour because I was like... This is my best friend. Why can't I tell you everything that's happened? You know, it's been, yeah. it's been, it's been like four years, but like, you know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you went thank through you. that. No, thank you. It's just, it's one, it's one of the, it's literally one of those things and it is life and, and mm. you understand that things are not fair. Um, but that is just how it goes. But, you know, so that I genuinely coming through that and that's been, I mean, I still am going through that, but that shifted me in, in such a big way. But it also means that um, I'm really grateful for the people that I do have right. um, in a way that I think I recognise a lot of people in my life are not. Um, yeah. But I'm really grateful for who is around me and, and, and who cares about me. And just literally, even though I wake up sometimes, I'm like, another day, okay. Um, I'm like, yeah, but you're here. Right. Um, because I'm also like always like low key depressed, which is like a thing, but it's like not a thing because I'm like it's been a thing for all my life. But you know, I think it's like I still am very grateful to be here just because I know that like a lot of people 
a lot. And, you know, Dan was like, he was so young, you know? Right. So, and your other friend, and Anton, Anton, Anton as well, young. like statistically, just the, the idea of of two young people dying like that in quick succession in someone's life, it's so... Yeah, and I think they were 20, they're both 26. God. And it was like babies, because I'm 31. 26 is a fucking baby. It's a baby. You know? It's a baby. So you haven't really, what have you done by then? You know, they'd obviously achieve things in their own way, but I know that they would have done amazing things. And how do you think, you know, you're talking about going to speak to Dan, which must be <clears throat> wonderful to be able to do that and have somewhere to mm. go and focus everything on. Yeah. Do you, um, do you think about how he must feel about you now and the success of Queenie? I, do, I just, he was the first, per, he was just the first person who said to me, oh, you can do what you want. And I was like, what? He was just like, you can do what you want. I know you can, so just do it. And I remember being like, I don't know. Because I'd always been told I couldn't do anything by, you know, by anyone who was in any position of power. And yeah, I think that he would be... Pr- I like to think he's still around. I still talk to him. Do you know what? He was in my dream the other day in a way that was like... I'm not a dream person. I'm not like, oh, what does that mean? Like, my teeth are falling out. What does that mean? But I had a dream that I walked into a room and he was just... And it was like maybe a month ago and he was just sat on the sofa... And I was like, where have you been? And he was like, yeah, I've just been about. And I was like, okay, well, let me catch up on everything. And we just had a really big chat. And then I was like, let's hang out more. And then I woke up and I was like, wow, that was weird. But he was like so completely realised in the dream. And I haven't seen him or spoken to him for like, what, five, six years. But he was just there in the way that he always was. So, you know. I don't, I'm not one of people who believes that like people at higher powers are watching us all the time, like, or, you know, but I, I do believe that he is still somewhere there. But I, I think that he would be proud. I hope mm. so. I mean, everything I do is, is with him in mind, you know? Let's talk about um, publishing for a bit because you've had such an interesting journey into becoming a novelist, yes. um, which is like working in the belly of the publishing beast, like learning mm. all of these aspects of, of how a book is made and created every step of the way. How did you feel that you um, fit into that publishing world when you were kind of in there? Absolutely didn't. Like never, ever, ever, ever fit in. But let me tell you, in my first proper job in publishing, I was very loved um I walked into that building and I always felt loved and everyone said morning to me and everyone wanted to talk to me so it was like a really great thing in the first place that I worked and I started the uh Guardian of Fourth Estate right but everyone was like okay yeah that makes sense that you would do that because you are a go-getter and because you want things to be better so yeah and I was really supported and really cared for in that job but I also was the one who was like at 23 was also being like hi guys I think we need to think about being more inclusive and again 23 is like fucking hell like you know Mm. and so but also I just have always recognized what is fair and what is not and I've always been Mm. like yeah so we need to sort things out so you know just being on every diversity forum and just trying to see everything you can just takes its toll I remember just being exhausted by the like by the time I left I remember just being like I I I don't know how any person could be be as tired as, as this right now just because you just spend so much time trying to educate people or just I guess deflecting a lot of the stuff that that comes at you people the things that people don't really 
understand are affecting or understand mm. are not good things to say to 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 people. So but that was a hard thing. Like that's frustrating that that's your burden to bear and your time that you have to spend informing and educating other people like that's a job in itself that that's like that yeah that should be paid work that's why I always <laughs> thought I was I was always like I, I'm I'm not a diversity consultant I work in right. book marketing and I'm able to market all of these books I'm able to market poetry and literary fiction and cookery but also I have this diversity role on the side which is not my job and it's not about money it's just about being able to literally get up go into work and do my job and then go home yeah and just do it well but right. when you have everything else on the side it's really really tough mm. it's really tough I just remember exhaustion is just the the thing that was like the theme of the day you know did you ever did you ever think I'm just gonna duck out of this like I just want to do my job did you ever speak to someone and be like I don't want to be the person that has to tell you all about diversity was it did that feel like an option it wasn't it wasn't. And there was, so I was always the only, in every job I've worked in in publishing, I've always been the only permanent black member of staff, man, woman, yeah. prefer not to say, like literally every single, yeah, every single time. And so I think for me, it felt also like a responsibility because I was like, I want things to be done right. And I think that is a transition that took me into writing because I was like, I would love to read about someone who is like mm. me, who is my age who is going through some stuff um and is going to come out on the other side of it i would love to read that and i was looking for it and i was searching high and low but also like i was looking in terms of the books that were coming in i was like you know because i was like now you're in a position where you can have access to, to and then you can be like we should publish that because it's amazing right. yeah but that wasn't coming so i was like let me start the prize and then when that things were happening fast enough I was like let me write a book so I've always been that person to be like what can we do that needs to be done and I think I think that forward thinking is me always being like and how do I make things better for myself and everyone else yeah tell me about the writing retreat I've never been on one I have Im images of what it must be like in my head mm -hmm. how do you go on a writing retreat and what was it like being in a writing retreat in Jojo Moy's house so yeah so basically I had uh, I'd applied for this this writing retreat which was so it was like a, it was just like a little cottage next to her huge house god uh, and I shouldn't mind me saying it's exactly it's, it's house, exactly it? as I would imagine it then yeah like rose huge. gardens and views oh and... my yeah yes yes pool everything yeah yeah everything um wow. and pool. um wow. I, I, I borrowed my, I, so I, I, I was, I was told, you know, you've, you've got this place, which is, is really great. And I remember being like, oh my God, because I was really upfront. I was like, look, I work in publishing, but I don't have the access that my peers have. I don't have the time that my peers have. Mm. Like, I haven't been on holiday for hundred years. Like, mm. I, I, I don't know what that is. Like, I just mm. exist in my house. Um, and I, I would like space to, to write. So I, you know, I, I did, I borrowed my friend Lydia's car and I drove on the motorway for the first time. I hadn't driven in years, but I was like, I need to, again, determination. I don't know where it comes from because it's not a daily thing. It's like a burst because right. I literally don't like getting out of bed. And I got there and Jojo's uh, husband was there and, and um, he, I signed an, an NDA because obviously like their house is their house and I can't okay. like, you know, they were like, you can't like put pictures you up. You can't be like Snapchatting and, like, and stuff. <laughs> oh my God, no. And I would never anyway, because I'm, I'm always a bit like sus. I, like, I know, but yeah. I know that, you know, it's like some people would. And then he was like, oh, Jojo's out, but she'll come and say hello at some point. And I was like, oh my, I just don't know how to, to thank you at all. And he was like, oh, just write a bestseller. And I was like, ha 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 ha. Um, and you but then did. obviously that fucking, 
Yeah, but so that terrified me because I was like, I mean, I'm here for a reason. I'm not yeah. here for a holiday. But uh, Jojo came a bit later and we had a chat about things. Obviously, we'd never met before, but we both like were kind of almost in tears because it was just quite a sort of like... Wow. She, I was like, thank you so much. And she was like, you deserve it. And I was like, but you don't have to do it. And she was like, but I do have to do it. And then we were both sort of just like this emotional standoff of like, I'm so grateful. But she was like, I'm so grateful you're here. And it was like, <laughs> like stopped the fridge. Like everything was like, mm. the, like everything was like Waitrose. And I was like, what is this? Like, I don't even know what, like this is, like I felt very undeserving of it. Cause I was like, it's too nice. Like, again, mm. I don't know what it's like when people are this nice to me. But I was like, yeah, you're here for a reason, though. So do your job. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I think before I went to bed, I wrote 10,000 words, which at the time for me was like insane. But for me now, that is insane. 10,000 words in one day is insane. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. But I think because I'm so used to it now that I'm like, yeah, well, come on. Come on. You can do more. You can do more. Um, But yeah, I did. And then I just spent the week sort of just like doing that and just also spending time with with her and her family as well, which is really nice because she was like, do you want to just come for dinner? And I was like, I mean, if you don't mind. And she was like, no. So I went and hung out. You know what I mean? So yeah, like, she yeah, didn't yeah. have to, but she did open her house to me. And she was like, because, you know, she didn't know me, but she was like, no, come in. But it's so quiet. It was so quiet. And I, I'd never been in such, I've grown up, as we know, I've literally right. obsessed with South London. Yeah. And so I, I never knew the absence of sound. And like in the countryside where you literally are just like, every noise, you're like, what was that? What was that? What was that? Oh my right. God, what was that? Yeah. And I remember one day saying to her like, hey, like, because my brain was going haywire. The things I was imagining were terrifying. Mm. And I was like, you know, was this, this, this place, was it built on like, you know, like servants' quarters or, or something? Like, because I really feel like, you know, I'm having all these feelings. And she was like, no, it was converted like from an old garage. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> And so it was just like, yeah, my brain was like, yeah, you're always going to have an imagination, but good that you're getting paid for it now, <laughs> rather than just scaring yourself for no reason. And did she help you? Like, what you know, in my head, again, a writer's retweet, obviously it's somewhere where you just have the space and the time to write. But I imagine that if it was under the umbrella of a of a kind of author at that level, there might be some element of her imparting advice uh, always on the advice but also she read my first oh god it was terrifying she was like so i so i so that the first time she gave me some advice and she was like look, look listen this is not like a one time i'm just here now like you have my number talk to right. me all the time so right. oh, oh wow, my god oh my god That's you incredible. can't imagine and so i went away yeah. and i knew that i had that in my head so I, I wrote i wrote it and then i was like she was like come back again and redraft it so I sent it to all of my friends and got all of their notes back and colour-coded their notes because I am sometimes a nerd when it comes to my work. And then I did all of those and she was like, okay, right, give me the first chapter. And I was like, give you the what? And she was like, just give me the first chapter. And I was like, why? Why would I do that? And she was like, come on, come and give it to me. So we sat by the pool and it was like maybe the strangest, hardest, most intense like sort of five minutes of my life where she just read the first chapter right next to me and didn't say anything and I was like oh my god time is going so slowly how is it how has it been an hour and it's been five minutes and um eventually she was like well very funny it's very funny isn't it and I was like is it because you didn't say anything (laughs) or laugh and you did a laugh. She was like, yeah. well, yeah, because like, I'm literally just, you know, I'm reading it. I'm trying to read it. And then we sat and we spoke about it. And we sat about and spoke about like the shape of it and what, 
who Queenie is and what she means. And we spoke about all the, you know, we just, you know, it was good to have someone just mm. at her level and someone who was as amazing as her to just talk about it with. And just, because mm. I guess like whenever I talk to someone at my work, that is when like my best ideas start coming. And like when my best mm. character decisions, like that's when I can start building on them and like building on the world. Mm. Um. How, I mean, you mentioned that the, the second novel, People, Person, when's it coming out, by the way? I uh, so it was that. coming out in September. It was meant to come out in September. And then I saw, I woke up and I saw that Sally Rooney's book was coming in September. And I messaged my editor, I said, we're not doing this. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ever going anywhere near Sally Rooney. Okay, we're not doing it. And she said, all right, we'll move it. We'll move it to Feb. So it's coming out next February because I was like, I'm not doing it. Because it's just, it's just, because I, I, yeah. also I know how publishing works. I know that they're going to be like, okay, this is going to be our focus novel. All the retailers are going to support it. There's like structures in place mm. that mean like if a book is coming out in September by Sally Rooney, nothing else is getting a look in. So I was like, we're not doing it. It's so amazing, isn't it, that you have that knowledge, that you oh know my God. how the system of course. works. Like, what of course, asset? because yeah. if my editor emailed me, I might have been like, wait, what? Why? But I literally just woke up and I was like, Look, listen, we're not, we're not doing this, Katie. And she was like, yeah. no, we're not doing it. Um, but definitely working, having worked in publishing, there's lots of stuff that I knew that I could apply. And like, just like, just basically just shortcuts to like understanding. What I didn't ever understand was the toll it would take on me mentally. That was the only thing that I was surprised what by. The, what the, in terms of what, the writing, the novel? No, the the, pub, the press, the publicising okay, it. Okay, so the tell me about, about that. It. I guess that's another, that was like another big life change. Just like suddenly, right. again, because I'm quite a, a shy person. I really mm. get, I don't like being looked at. I don't, it's not my thing I like to be the quiet one I like to observe like I can be loud when I'm with my friends but like mainly I'm quite like like new people terrify me Mm. and so like they excite me but also like I'm like okay I have to go and lie down but suddenly I was on a stage I was on stages and just talking and talking and talking and I was like what the fuck like every single time I was like Mm. why am I saying stuff like they they all hate me like they're all I used to I, I used to I had to have when I was at work public speaking training because I used to it used to make me so anxious mm. but I think that was also a product of of being the only black person in a room full of white people for such a long of time course. by the time yeah. it was like like I would be nervous about having to say my name like go around them and say your name I'd be like oh my god what is your name what is your name what is your name hold on how are you gonna you're gonna mess it up could you say your full name do you say your just your first name do you say your middle names do you just say like my head was just spinning and so like by the time, like, the first public speaking event that I did was, like, a showcase for the whole publisher. And it was, like, 1,200 people. And I remember I did not oh, sleep. That I didn't sleep the night before. I didn't eat on the day. I just remember just being, like, you just just get through it without dying. Genuinely. Like, because I was, like, I, I was not mm. functioning. And then I got on the stage and I was just, like, anyway. And I can just, I'm quite good at turning it on. But then I had to then sleep for, like, a week. So I'm, I can do it, but the physical strain and the physical toll is very real. Mm. Queenie took off in a way that I don't think anyone expected, certainly not me. And I was doing press for like a, a, a solid year. And then by the end of that, I had this massive chest infection. Like my body was just like, we, we have to stop going to right. places every weekend I wasn't seeing my friends mm. I wasn't seeing anyone I was just doing my work but also just because yeah it was the anxiety it was the the exposure and I guess like the way that everything just changed and I went from 
just quite en- enjoying never being a thing. So people come up to me on at the tube station and being like, did you write Queenie? Or like, oh God, did you write that book? Yeah. Or just like sometimes like, are you Candice Clayton Williams? And sometimes I yeah. would say no. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I get that. I get yeah. that. And like with Queenie, and, and this just goes to show how fucking naive I am about, you know, and, and never had to think about it because I'm a white person. But the idea of you writing that book, I thought you just had a story you needed to get out. Mm. And and what you have inferred, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you, you obviously had that, but there was also a kind of driving force behind getting that story out, which was to kind of change publishing and show people that there was stories that needed to be told that weren't being told. Mm. With this second book, was there any driving forces behind that? And, and how, you know, what did you want to say with that, if anything? That's a great question. Um, so the second book, so if Queenie is a book about, I guess Queenie is a book about value, but also about mum shit, People Person is about dad shit in a really yeah. big way. And I was like, I will need to talk about dad stuff at some point. Um, and People Person is about... Uh, five half siblings who have to come together, um, having not known each other because their dad kept them separate, um, and they have to help one of the siblings figure something out, um, which happens quite a lot in the book. And they've also got to figure out who they are and like learn each other, but also understand that like, oh, like did you grow up with dad? No, I thought you grew up with dad. Like, when did you see? How often did you see dad? <laughs> um, because I know that that is also a part of, of, of my life. But I know that people won't ask me if I'm the, the main character because the thing that happens in the book is I, I could not get away with that thing. So please leave me alone. I'm not my characters, please. Yeah. But yeah, the, the dad stuff is very real. And I really wanted to explore how affecting it is. Because, you know, I uh, my mum was a single mum for, for a lot of my upbringing. And all of my siblings, they have been my dad wasn't around for them either and it has affected us all in in very different ways but there is also you know there's this narrative that black dads aren't around and the stuff it does to it just really like fucks like you know like all these single parents like all these single moms who are like having to raise their sons and that's why there's so much like knife crime and like gun culture and it's all and it's like what and I remember like a, an aunt actually said something similar she was like you know well you know like you know women have to raise their their, their kids you know by themselves and I was like my mum's is all right like I'm all right <laughs> like I, I'm doing better than your fucking yeah, kids mate yeah. and you've had both parents um but you know and like you know like my brother again like my brother is a he like lives in Luton he works in IT he's got two kids like it's just so you know it's just like yeah. this narrative I find really hard I think and it's a narrative that comes up time and time again um and I was like no we need to talk about the fact that you know also there is more to it than just like you know people are just are not again statistics but also people are not just you know just like oh yeah you grew up without a dad so you're your ex or your Y. like every life has different texture and every relationship that we have to a parent um maybe it's absent is also very different and I really want to talk about that but Mm. obviously in like sort of fiction in like high drama because that's what I love yeah right before you go the change you most want for yourself right now you mentioned it at the top yes so at the beginning of lockdown I was like okay, you have to think about having therapy because this shit is hard and you're by yourself and all of these demons that you had, you thought you'd successfully run away from and pushed away. They are, no, 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 they're here. They're still here. They're still here. And 
then uh, before my, my book won Book of the Year at the British Book Awards, I was like, okay, there is going to be a lot of praise that is incoming and you are not going to be able to handle it because it is going to be so at odds with how you feel about yourself. And I was like, so the day before right. I found a therapist and I was like, I'm going to need to start ASAP. And as predicted, all the praise came in and I was like, I hate this. I hate myself. And so I was like, you can't do mm-hmm. that. You can't be like that, mate. Like, you know, um, and so mm-hmm. therapy mm-hmm. has been an amazing thing. It's been a fucking hard thing. But the change I was I would like is to be able to, I guess, receive the love that is always coming at me just because. Yeah. If you're not used to it and you don't know what, um, what if you're not used to it, you actually don't know what to do with it when it comes. If you haven't had love like that in your childhood, when it starts coming, I don't heard you are literally like people are lying to me. Like people are just saying it. They're just right. pretending. You, you, there is just no possible way to, to yeah. actually receive it. So that's a change I'd like to make for myself is able to receive the love that is always coming. Because I know, I know that I'm so cared for and so supported. Mm. Like my phone has been in airplane mode. And I know that at least two of my best friends will be like, are you OK? Because we haven't heard from you this morning, you know? <laughs> um, should I come? I'm coming around. I'm on my way. Like I'll just knock <laughs> on the door and just open it and just wave. Um <laughs> And so, you know, I do, I know, but it's it's so hard to, to receive. But I think that will come. It's, it's, it's coming. I can feel it. I can tell, you know? Yeah. Well, for, for the risk of making you uncomfortable, I think you're fucking amazing. And I think you're so uh-huh. strong. Like, you keep talking about all the shit you've gone through. And then, like, okay, yeah, so I just borrowed my mate's car and drove on a motorway for the first time. So I just wrote this book. So I just <laughs> did this. So I just did this. You have this amazing force of will inside you that is charging you forwards and it's just amazing to watch so yeah I can't wait to see once you've discovered how to uh, receive praise what happens next scary thought but thank you and I feel the same about you I think you're amazing Oh, Candice Carty-Williams, what a woman. Do you know what I mean about the kind of honesty that she brought? Um, It was so refreshing uh, to talk to her and she's so personable. Um, I felt like I could just go to the pub with her straight after and, you know, I I felt like I knew her so well. So I'm so grateful to her for taking the time and um, and being so honest in that conversation with us. And do go and pre-order the new novel, People, Person. It comes out next February. Um, it's going to be a good read, guaranteed. Let us know what you thought of Candice. Obviously, rate, review, subscribe, all of that biz. I'm going to be back next Monday for International Women's Day with a lady who has been called the Agatha Christie of the adoption world. Her job is to find people. She is a tracer of people, a private investigator, if you will. It's a fascinating conversation her name is Ariel Bruce and you'll hear from her next Monday and thank you to everyone getting in touch about the last few episodes if you missed them you can still listen back to Khalees Bears Larch Maxi who we spoke to from a tunnel under Euston Station he's a HS2 rebellion activist he actually got evicted from the tunnel this week so it's kind of quite poignant listening to the conversation knowing now that he's out of there after nearly four weeks in the tunnel And of course, we spoke to Travis Alabanza last week as well. And many of you have been loving that one too. All right, share the podcast, spread it around, tell your grand, tell everyone. And we will be back next week with more changes. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with research from Leila Simone Springer through Rethink Audio. See you next time.